0: So last time we got about three or four verses into chapter three. So what I'd like to do is start with chapter three and I will slam right through the first four verses and get to verse five, which is where we're probably going to camp out for a while. So Colossians three, if then you have been raised with Messiah, seek the things that are above where Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are in the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Messiah in God. When Messiah, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And what we spent a lot of time talking about last time is as children of Adam, we are all born mortal. So as such, we live, if you will, in the kingdom of death. The world, it would be the kingdom of death. And, of course, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of life. In order to get from this world to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of life, you have to die with air quotes around it. And the way that happens is you descend into the waters of baptism and you come up out of the waters of baptism, symbolizing going through the waters of creation, And when you come up on the far side, you are born again. And so what you've done is you have switched from the kingdom of the earth, or the kingdom of death, to the realm of life. That, in 25 words or less, is what we talked about last time. Spent most of the whole hour on it. So now that you're in the kingdom of life as opposed to in the kingdom of death, how do you behave? That's the subject going forward he talks in the first four verses about the transition between death and life and okay now that you've made that transition what now that's sort of the setup if you will for verse 5 so colossians 3 5 put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry so The idea here is since you have put to death, if you will, the old man, the man that was born into the kingdom of death, was born mortal, you have put him to death, you have gone down through the waters of baptism, you've come up on the other side, you are reborn a new creature, what he's saying is, oh by the way, don't bring the stuff from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life. And you get list sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry that's where i want to hang out for just a minute and what paul does here is he equates covetousness with idolatry of course y'all being lightning fast bible scholars recognize that thou shalt not covet is the 10th commandment and as i have said many many times and i will say quickly here The Ten Commandments are the third of three sequences of ten in the Torah. So the first sequence of ten is the ten statements of creation, where God said, and it was. You count them up and there seem to be only nine, but there's actually ten because the first one was in the beginning, and that's when time kicks off. So you have ten statements of creation, which makes the world that we live in. Then you have the ten plagues of Egypt. And what the ten plagues of Egypt do is symbolically back out those ten statements of creation. So God makes everything with ten commandments. Then in the Exodus, the ten plagues of Egypt, he backs it all out, essentially symbolically destroying the previous creation. Then Israel goes through the waters, the Red Sea, So they go down into death, they come up on the far side, born again, quote unquote, and he takes them then to Sinai, where we have ten statements again, and these are ten statements of recreation. In each of the cases of these sequences of ten, there's a pattern. And the pattern is, you start off with one and you move your way through nine, and what ten becomes is the culmination and intensification of the first nine. In the Ten Statements of Creation, first thing we do is create time, then we create heavens and the earth, then we can create the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the animals, and all that kind of stuff. And the capstone of all that is the creation of man. Similarly then, when we have the ten plagues, you start off with blood, and we go to frogs and lice and the whole thing. And the culmination of that is the death of the firstborn and so then if we follow that same pattern in the ten commandments you have first off i am god and then you shall have no other gods before me and so on but the end of it then is thou shalt not covet and thou shalt not covet is the intensification or culmination of that list the reason for the original sin was covetousness the woman looked at something that she was told she could not have and she coveted it and was then tempted and reached out her hand and took it. The thing that she coveted was be like God but the fruit that she wanted was the only thing that was forbidden and the reason it was forbidden was because it would convey the knowledge of good and evil and what God wanted to do was he wanted to be the source of the definition of good and evil and we wanted to make our own definitions of good and evil which then leads us to idolatry and covetousness and notice by the way he says put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness so covetousness is sort of the capstone of that list that he is talking about The idea here is humanity has always chafed at being told what to do. We are the quintessential two-year-old. We say, no, I don't wanna do that. And we try every which way to avoid being told what to do and to avoid accountability when we disobey, just the way we are. Because you remember when the man and the woman ate of the fruit and God says, what have you done? And Adam turns around and says, she gave it to me, wasn't my fault. And the woman turns around and says, the serpent tempted me, wasn't my fault. So the idea of wanting to escape accountability for our actions is as old as the first couple. What Paul is saying here is covetousness, which is the tenth commandment and is the Intensification of everything that's come before is equivalent to idolatry. And idolatry is making gods in your own image because you want a better deal. Now, don't get me wrong, there are two things going on here. Thing one is just humanity wanting a better deal, and if I create an idol in my own image, my idol Let's me have all the sex I want. And if you look at pagan temples in the New Testament era and before, you wanted a hot time in the old town tonight, you went to the temple. Because you had temple prostitutes, you had pretty much anything you wanted, free for all. Idolatry then allows you to decide for yourself what you want to do. And what the idol does is gives you moral cover. It must be all right because it's happening in the temple. Of course, God doesn't buy that, and Moses doesn't buy that, but that's the impulse. So what you have here with covetousness is this desire to do your own thing and feel good about yourself. Does that sound like virtue signaling to you? Sounds like virtue signaling to me, that human impulse to... Do what you want to do and be ratified by the crowd so that you don't feel like you're doing something wrong. Virtue signaling is making sure you have the same opinion everybody else does and you display it loud and proud. One of the things about covetousness is it is a sin of the heart. You don't have to overtly do anything to be covetous. Autonomy. Do you want to be your own law? And certainly, it will involve stuff. As in, he has a car, I don't, and I really, really want that car. But it's also more than that. It is, do I get to decide for myself what's right and wrong, or do I have to follow what God says? So, that's the real source of the problem. And it then devolves down to the car. But the real source of the problem is we want to be a law unto ourselves. We want to be autonomous. Working definition of covetousness is wanting something that you cannot have, at least not right now. And I would certainly agree with that. But what I'm suggesting to you is the something that you want, if it's stuff, I want that car, I want that bank account, I want that woman, I want that man, I want whatever, flows from a desire to be our own source of right and wrong. And yes, then it goes down to, I want this, I want that, I want the other thing. If your neighbor has a sports car you like, and you've got the means to do it, you can go down to the car dealer and buy one just like it. That's not covetousness. Looking at the sports car next door and say, wow, that's a really neat sports car, and I want one, and I'm going to work to earn it, I'm going to make him an offer on it, or I'm going to go buy one, no harm at all there. That's normal. The problem is, I want that sports car, that's the only sports car that will satisfy me, and the reason I want it is because he has it then you're into covetousness. In other words, just wanting to buy a sports car is no harm, no foul. Mm -hmm. It's when you want something that belongs to someone else and you cannot attain it, then you're dealing with covetousness. It's a heart thing. If you're trying to be or become your neighbor, then it's covetousness. If you just look at it and say, Wow, I like the way they did the windows on that house. Who's the contractor that did your windows? I'd like to have him come do mine. That's a really nice job. Then that's not a problem. It's entirely a heart thing. And the question is, am I trying to become my neighbor by acquiring all of his stuff? Or do I just look at it and say, wow, that looks like it's really fun to drive. I think I'll get one. It's entirely a heart thing. Remember, the thing about covetousness is it's inside of you. So if you look at the guy driving around in his sports car and say, wow, that looks kind of fun. I think I'll go get one myself. That's not covetousness. But if you look at it and say, I want to be just like him, then you're in the covetousness. So there's two kinds of idolatry. Kind number one, we have been talking about. Kind number two is the worship of demons. And in that case, there is an actual being involved behind the idol. If you just want to be your own thing and are worshipping an idol and there's no demon involved, I don't know if that's possible, but let's assume for a moment it is, as opposed to having a demon involved where the demon actually has the ability to do stuff for you. And what that entails then is wanting a better deal than what god gives you and poster child for that of course is satan in the garden what do you mean god says you can't have that oh, of course you can so what she does is she listens to the demon satan as opposed to listening to god because he tells her to do something that she already wants to do By idolatry it is never good But sometimes it actively involves a demon in there, and sometimes it doesn't necessarily. It's simply a system that people set up to let them do what they want to do, as opposed to having a demon that's making its own suggestions. So in the garden, you have the demon, Satan, making suggestions. You can do this. And in demon worship, a worship of idols with demons, you have the demon actively involved not only being the object of worship, but making suggestions on how you can go astray. And not being an expert on the subject, I don't know if it is possible to have an idol without a demon. It may not be. I I don't know. Never having worshipped an idol, I couldn't tell you. Back in the, I want to say in the 70s, there was a program, and it was one of these three or four letter programs i don't remember what it was something like S E S T. est it wasn't necessarily that but it was one of these programs that was really hot in the business community and what they do is they take you in and instruct you in this thing and if you didn't get a spirit guide at the end of the session they gave you your money back I don't remember what it was. I, as I say, I don't remember the actual name of the program, but it was a real program. And as I say, it was really hot in business circles because what you did is you had your own personal demon that could see what was going on in the spirit world, which would give you an advantage in business. So what you're doing is volunteering to go get demon-possessed. And if you didn't get the demon, you got your money back. So demons are alive and well, and they always have been. The ultimate idolatry happened in the garden where we decided that we wanted to be arbiters of good and evil as opposed to listening to God. And that has not gone away. So let me pick it up at 5 again and we'll blow right through 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, these things that he has just listed... Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slaves, free, but Messiah is all and in all. So what he's saying here is the system of the world, which they have come out of when they switched kingdoms from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God. So they've come out of that. And what he's saying is all of the stuff that was common in the other kingdom is going to be taken care of by God. Revelation in time stuff. And what we see in Revelation, of course, is the outworking in some detail of the wrath of God in the person of Yeshua on this world which is walking Contrary to him and is walking in idolatry and covetousness. Let's do 11 again. Verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That, by the way, also shows up in Ephesians. That same phrase. It's in specifically Ephesians 1, verse 23. And what he's saying there is everything is the messiah he is everything and he is in everything so he's all and he is in all the idea here is with the spirit of god living in you he is in you but he is also the creator and sustainer of everything so he is all verse 12 Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So the idea here is, obviously, Yeshua came and died for us while we were yet sinners. In other words, he didn't wait for us to repent and ask for him. He came and did it even though we were still in rebellion. And he just listed the kinds of rebellion we walked in. So his point here is, if Yeshua was able to forgive you, how much more then should you be able to settle your petty differences with your brother? And the petty party I'm obviously inserting as an editorial comment. But the idea here is, no matter what you have against your brother, it cannot be anywhere near as bad as what God had against you, and he's forgiven you. So you need to figure out a way to forgive your brother. The comment was that in order to forgive, the offender has to ask to be forgiven. And the problem with that is, you then have given control over your spiritual state to somebody else. So if that person has offended you and that person then refuses ever to ask for forgiveness, then you're still carrying around this anger at being wronged and there's no way you can get rid of it because he never acknowledges his guilt and he never asked you to be forgiven. The idea of forgiving somebody is not for the benefit of the person who is forgiven. The idea of forgiving is for your benefit so you can unload the anger and pain, and you can get on with your life. If you're gonna spend your life waiting for people to come to you and ask to be forgiven, you've essentially given them control over your spiritual state. Seeking justice and forgiveness are two different things. You can tell they're spelled differently. And we set up systems of justice to redress wrongs in this world. But that's not the same as forgiveness. You can call him up to jail, and you can have him thrown in jail for stealing your car, and you can feel all self-righteous about it, but you haven't forgiven him. You have simply executed justice. And don't get me wrong, justice is a good thing. I'm not at all downplaying justice. The Bible says that we should establish courts and do justice. Absolutely. But that's different than your spiritual condition of forgiving the perp separate justice from forgiveness again two different concepts All right. so 13 and a half if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ Messiah rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful Let the word of Messiah dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The idea here is you have put the old man to death, and what you want to do is become more like christ and what it's talking about is him who is perfectly loving and the idea here is you want to become more like him and there are things to do that help you with that one of my very favorite sayings i don't remember who said it is if you have a problem with lust your ministry is probably not to a whorehouse i'm serious the idea here is You want to live in a way that promotes getting closer to God. And you can say all you want. Well, I have this powerful feeling for the fallen women of the world. And I'm going to go minister to them. Well, if you don't have a problem with lust, that's probably a good thing. But if you do, you shouldn't go there. Because the environment that you put yourself in will influence your spiritual state. Verse 18. Now he's going to talk about interpersonal relationships. And again, the the sequence here is put the old man to death, become more Christ-like. Right now, how do you do it? So verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. One of the things that happens over and over and over again in Scripture, and it rubs modern women the wrong way, is male leadership and authority in the family that's just an unfortunate part of our current situation but it is constant throughout scripture and the point is wives are to be subordinate if you will to their husbands but husbands are to love their wives and not be harsh in other words this is not do whatever you're told and There's nothing on him except whatever he wants. In other words, the reciprocal obligations here. And then children obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Same thing. The next thing is fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So there are reciprocal responsibilities. The child is subordinate and is supposed to listen to his parents because they're the ones that are charged with his upbringing and education. The idea then is, fathers, you have a responsibility to do that upbringing and education in a gentle and loving way. 22, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men." Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Messiah. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for wrong he has done, and there is no partialities. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So every one of these things is balanced. This, by the way, is not a justification of slavery. It is a recognition of of slavery and how do you deal with it. And of course, there's a difference between biblical slavery where someone is sold into slavery because he can't manage himself. He falls into crime and gets in debt and all that kind of stuff. What he has done is sold for a period of time for his debts. It's interesting because in the Torah, there isn't a concept of prison doesn't exist now it does exist in the new testament where you have roman and secular prisons and certainly they had some place where they could put somebody while they figured out what to do with him but the three remedies if you will for a criminal is thing one if it's serious enough you just kill him thing two is he makes restitution for his crime and so you have the exchange ratio of you steal this many sheep you got to pay that many more back So second one is restitution for what you've done. And then the third one is being put on the auction block and sold for a period of time. You are indentured then to a family who is successful enough to buy your contract. And the idea there is you get put under a discipline of somebody who knows what he's doing, and one hopes at the end of that time, and the Bible says very clearly, when you send him out, you gotta send him out well equipped. It's not just $10 and a cheap suit of clothes. You've got to give him enough to get started. So the idea there is restorative. Now, that is different from slaves captured in war and slaves purchased on the Gentile slave market. Now, at this point, this is genealogy. Scripture is silent about this. What Scripture says is such a slave who was captured in a war or bought on the Gentile slave market, he can have forever. What I think is intended there, and this is where the genealogy comes in, scripture is silent, is as he lives in a Hebrew household and learns about God and learns the ways of God, I would suspect that he has the opportunity to become a Hebrew. And at that point, once he's a Hebrew, then the laws of a Hebrew slave kick in. Now... Big caveat here. One of the things that happens in the major prophets, and I don't remember whether it's Jeremiah or Ezekiel, I think maybe Jeremiah, Israel wasn't doing that. One of the reasons they got sent into exile is because they weren't following that, and what they were doing is they were keeping Hebrew slaves in bondage longer than their contract. So when I say this genealogy thing, I'm not being Pollyannish. I am recognizing that people are people and they will corrupt everything, which we do. But that's sort of the way the system was set up. Chapter 4 and verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Obviously, first off, he's asking for prayer for himself, that his ministry would be more effective. But the other one is interesting. You are living in a pagan society. I post my podcast on Facebook. Every now and then I'll get a drive-by atheist who will say, oh, you people are so stupid, fearing something that doesn't exist, as in fearing God. And typically I don't answer them. Usually somebody else will. In other words, another commenter will answer them. But I regard it as somebody scribbling on the bathroom wall in a bus station. Nobody cares that listens to my blog that this guy thinks that God doesn't exist. Why is he mentioning it? I mean it's like going into a church and saying God doesn't exist. Well everybody here who is in church believes that he does. That's why they're in church. So what do you think you're accomplishing by saying he doesn't? One guy said today, Why are you afraid of something that doesn't exist? And I was tempted to answer, because I'm not a fool. At parenthesis, like you are. And I didn't do it, nor will I, because it doesn't do any good and all it does is inflame passion and evoke a defensive reaction he's not being persuasive to anybody who's listening to the blog so why engage with him paul is saying the same kind of thing here you're going to be walking in a pagan world back in chapter two one of the things that was apparently going on is pagans were giving their former co-religionists a hard time for following torah So if you follow Torah, you will get a hard time from the world occasionally. And what Paul is saying here is, be careful how you speak. Don't turn it into a a shouting match, but also have your word seasoned with salt. Speak the truth, but speak it in a way that doesn't cause a major fight, if you can. What we have now are personal greetings. Some of the people are mentioned elsewhere in scripture and so forth. But the idea here that I get from this is the network of Christian and Messianic believers is Mediterranean-wide. So Paul's in prison probably in Rome. Yet he knows people in churches that he has never visited. For example, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. Well, Tychicus is one of his disciples, if you will. And Tychicus is going to head off to Colossae. And he's going to tell them about what's going on with Paul. So this network of people who know each other and regularly communicate clearly existed in Paul's time. That's what I get out of this section. But other than that, I don't have any particular comments. So verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activity. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are And that we may encourage your hearts. And with him, Osemius, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place. So he's sending two guys, Tychicus and Onesimus. And Onesimus, remember, is the slave who is in Philemon. So we see him again. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. See that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So apparently there's another letter that we don't have access to. Verse 17, and say to... Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Encouragement again. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. That whole section, if you will, is it's a packet wrapper. In communications, you have two parts. You have a wrapper, which is the thing that gets the message to where it's going, what would be called an address. In computers, it's more routes and all that kind of stuff so you have a wrapper and then you have the message itself and so most of chapter four is what i would call a packet wrapper which is authenticating telling who's gonna get the message that kind of stuff it's not part of the actual message